Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank whomever suggested me for this uh, talk because it's uh, really an honor to have a chance to talk firsthand with some of the people who are doing work that I'd like to write about in my next book. Now, uh, this, there is uh, this big book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, uh, which is still being printed, that I will never write a big book like this again. My sister said I needed to write a beach book, which you could carry to the beach. So here's the beach book. Um, it's called Disconnect, The Truth About Cell Phone Radiation, What Industry Has Done to Hide It, and How to Protect Your Family. And it's not been exactly a bestseller, and I think we can figure out some of the reasons why in the course of a discussion that we may have. I'd like to ask how many of you have an iPhone. Would you please take your phone and go to settings? And those of you who don't have an iPhone, you can look on or share. Uh, go to general. And uh, maybe I'll do this with you. I'll take out my, uh, my phone. I use a phone. I'm not opposed to them at all. But I do use it this way so I can hear, actually. So you go to, go to uh, general. And then at the top of general, you go to about. And when you get to about, you have to scroll down toward the bottom of the page, and you'll see the word legal. And you click on that. And then at the bottom of that, you'll see RF exposure. And that's telling you in the phone that the phone company lawyers have decided they need to let you know that you have to keep the phone at least 10 millimeters away from the body in order not to exceed the as-tested exposure limits. Right? Now, the reason for that advice is obviously legal. Uh, but I want you to think about uh, what it means in the context of my presentation today. And may I suggest that you put your phones on airplane mode? This will have two effects. It will mean everybody else in the room that needs to get online can do so because you'll be reducing the demand for the Wi-Fi. Not that anyone would be doing that now. But it will also mean that you won't be getting interrupted um, by, during the talk, which presumably would be a good idea for both of us. Now, I'm going to discuss what we've learned from the history of tobacco, asbestos, and ionizing radiation, and briefly go through the lessons from there, uh, which are in my secret history of the War on Cancer book. And the secret history, there is one big secret, and I think you'll be able to figure it out really fast. And it is, if you want the future to be different from the past, study the past. So let's look at what we did, and let's look at what we know. This is work done in Scandinavia, where identical twins, homozygotic, coming from one egg, splits in two at conception. And you can see uh, here the chromosomal bands look close to identical for 1, 3, 12, and 17 at age 3. But look at what happens to them. The uh, chromosomal banding patterns reflect areas of euchromatin light bands that are relatively high in gene content and they contain a relatively higher proportion of active genes. Um, so you see here that by age 50, the chromosomes 1 and 17, 3, don't even necessarily look like they came from the same person. And yet these are identical twins. So this is a very powerful indication of the fact that even identical twins, which are as close to a clone as we have in nature, don't develop the same diseases. We know that from cancer statistics, by the way. They don't develop the same cancer. And it's telling us that genes give us the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. And that's why we've got to pay attention to the environmental factors that influence cancer today. Now, one of the first environmental factors to be identified as a cause of cancer, in fact, was x-rays. This is the hand of Bertha Röntgen, who was the wife of the man who first developed x-rays. And within days of developing the first x-ray, this image had appeared on the front page of newspapers around the world. Röntgen understood he'd done something that important. And science uh, was beginning to get the recognition from society that it, it merited. But the uses of x-rays were, some of them were quite preposterous. Immediately, people held x-ray parties. <coughs> And there were salons where they would stand in front of the machines and move and watch their bodies being x-rayed. Clarence Daly worked for Thomas Edison. 
with radiation. And he died in 1904 from radiation poisoning. Edison himself would never go near an x-ray when he saw what had happened to his assistant. Madame Curie, who received the Nobel twice for her work, um, died of leukemia herself. And her notebooks were too hot to handle because they were so contaminated. The understanding of the need to control exposure to ionizing radiation in the beginning was not there. there. But now you saw that with the development of this tragedy for Marie Curie and for many others of the lab techs who worked with agents of ionizing radiation, people began to be aware you needed to protect against these exposures. And by 1936, there was an international congress on scientific and social campaign against cancer. And I want to stress both those words, scientific and social. Uh, in 1936, the world's on the verge of war, and scientists travel by boat and train to meet uh, at this congress. Uh, and they, at that time, reviewed studies identifying these things as known causes of cancer at that time. Hormones, x-rays, sunlight, coal tars, including smoke and fumes, which had been identified as cancer-causing really for quite some time. Benzene and cobalt and uranium mining. The kinds of evidence they reviewed, I discuss in my book, included experimental studies with animals, and I'm going to show you just one example of a really elegant work that was done, as well as observations on workers and people with high exposures. These pictures are quite amazing to me because the quality of the drawing and the sophistication of the work is quite, quite impressive. They took UV radiation and they painted tars on the animals and they produced a synergistic effect in 1936 showing that sunlight caused cancer and that if you added coal tars to it, you could create a, a more of a cancerous effect. And the, the same researcher, Angel Rofo, directed a tobacco research institute in 1930 in Buenos Aires. And he advised against the dangerous social habit of sunbathing in the 1930s. And he also showed in other studies that the younger the animal when it was exposed, the faster the tumor would develop. So this discovery that we've made more recently about the need to protect children, this isn't a discovery. It's something that has been known for, for a long time. Now, one of the reasons we didn't do a better job of understanding and acting on the causes of cancer, such as tobacco, was that the people who started the American Cancer Society way back when were advertising agencies for the tobacco industry and a geneticist here, Clarence Cook Little, who would go on to become the founding director of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Tobacco Industry Research Council. And this is a real cover of Time magazine showing him with that lovely smile lighting a pipe. Now, he went on to lead the tobacco industry in its campaign, and they funded researchers around the world at some of the top institutions well into the 1990s. They also funded the American Medical Association and ran these ads in the American Medical Association boasting about how doctors smoked camels more than other cigarettes and how this would be beneficial to your health. Because, of course, nicotine is a good drug. It does stimulate the brain. It does have beneficial effects. Of course, it's transmitted in this form that is poisonous and has been known to be poisonous to some physicians for hundreds of years. But the knowledge, the scientific base of the understanding of the dangers of tobacco was arguably not determined sufficiently to be considered proof of harm. And I want you to think about this as we talk about other hazards today. How much evidence is needed before we take action to prevent future harm from happening? Do we really want to say that we should take an entire generation and expose them to something and see whether or not they develop a problem before taking steps to reduce exposures when and if we can do so? I would submit to you that that question I'm raising is not a scientific question. It's a policy question. 
We need to be rational and logical about how we formulate policy. But the same question today must be asked about climate change. How much evidence do we need before taking more serious actions to restrict our production of greenhouse gases and methane, being one of the greenhouse gases that has been under recognized. I did learn today, John, that methane emissions from dams is a very considerable factor in exposure that has not been taken into account on many of the models that we use for the IPCC. So we go back to tobacco and we recognize that doctors were smokers, 70% of surgeons were smoking in the 1950s. And when they were told that there was evidence that tobacco caused cancer, they said, wait a minute, we believe it's all from inherited risk. Now, of course, Eventually, what happened is the human data became overwhelming, but it took a long time. And in the meantime, an entire generation had become addicted to tobacco. This is just one example. This man was a very, very famous basketball star named Bob Cousy. And he appeared boasting that you needed to smoke Kent because what happened is the tobacco companies finally realized they couldn't deny the evidence on tobacco so they decided they would propose filters and say to people that filters would prevent you from being exposed. Well, the filters actually worked. In fact, the first filters worked really well, so they removed most of the taste and people didn't like them. But do you know what was the secret ingredient in those first uh, tobacco-filtered cigarettes? Asbestos. Asbestos does filter out a lot of things, including, by the way, ionizing radiation, where it is can be used. But the secret ingredient in Kent cigarettes was asbestos. Now, when, the Na when the President Nixon was one of our most brilliant politicians and has not really been given adequate credit for what he did on the environment and what he did uh, on cancer, he was, as I think you all know, associated with some very unpleasant wars. So he got the idea that we needed a national war on cancer and that would be a war everybody would like. So in 1971, he started two wars he thought would be popular. One was the war on cancer, and the other was the war on drugs. And he declared that we were going to eradicate cancer uh, within about 10 years. And he brought in people who had figured out how to put a man on the moon, and they had flip charts, and they figured out how they were going to go about doing this. Well, one of the things they decided to do was to make a safe cigarette and the U.S. government spent millions of dollars on this, and the Safe Cigarette campaign was led by the director of the National Cancer Institute, who was a four-pack-a-day smoker. Uh, and Ernst Winder led his part of that activity, and the American Medical Association received grants from the tobacco industry into the 1970s and 80s. With respect to tobacco and asbestos, the war on cancer was silent. What we now know, of course, is that asbestos can be a hazard to people depending on where and how they're exposed. And what you may not be aware of, and I would urge you here to check carefully, listen to what I'm saying, is that there are 30 million American homes now that have asbestos insulation on it, in it that is not labeled as asbestos. You can find information on this from the EPA website, and do not go into your attic to look for it. If you have any reason to think that you might have zonalite attic insulation, call an inspector to have them check it out, because a small amount of exposure can be a big problem, but it does take about 40 years before it's evident. In fact, 40 to 60 years later. I have a cousin right now, and she and her mother both have asbestos-related lung cancer that they got 60 years ago when her father would come home from his job as a plumber. We now have a situation where one in three cases of a relatively rare tumor called mesothelioma is occurring in someone who was not known to have worked with asbestos, and it's considered to be a tumor typical of asbestos exposure. What is that telling us? It's telling us that there is a lot of non-occupational exposure to asbestos. Now I want to turn to what current policy is about radiation dose. The American College of Radiology issued a white paper in 2008. Uh, when our, my book came out in 2007, and I was working 
late at night, and I went up to talk to my radiation oncology colleagues. I was then the director at the Cancer Institute of the Environmental Oncology Center. And I began to calculate what was the dose in chest x-ray equivalents from CT scans. I think you all may know this, but I was shocked to find out that a CT scan to a child, to an infant, that is not adjusted for the infant's size can give that baby more than 1,000 chest x-rays. And unfortunately, CT scanners have not always been adjusted for body weight and size. So the American College issued a statement of concern about this in 2008, <laughs> noting that medical x-rays had suddenly surpassed environmental exposures in their amount of exposure that people were getting. And <clears throat> this is a calculation that we published of the chest x-ray equivalents for a pediatric head CT scan. And you can see here, if this machine is not adjusted and you're focusing on the brain, you can get between 400 to 6,000 chest x-rays from one CT scan in a baby. And the pediatric dose can be uh, very, very high. Based on this, the American College of Radiology has now recommended federal standards for technologists and training and licensing, and a national database on radiation doses. You, it not, should not be that hard to develop a cumulative record of all of your radiation that's for medical purposes. And that should be very important for people to have. For example, if you have kidney stones, if you have a chronic ailment for which x-rays are often used, you need to know this. And you need to talk with your physicians about this as well. But improved medical training and retraining is now being recommended now, almost 100 years after the first reports of cancer from ionizing radiation. 100 years. And there are calculations now by the US National Cancer Institute that we are starting to see some increased risks of cancer in young adults from the overzealous use of CT scans when they were children. So the current policy of the American College of Radiology is to recommend that CT scans use the ALARA concept, which is as low as reasonably, actually that should be achievable, not acceptable, as low as reasonably achievable uh, scans. Now, the ironic thing, as I think many of you know, is the best pictures come with the highest dose. And so there's a tendency of the technologists to ramp up uh, the energy in order to get a good picture. But we are really working now to educate them as well as pediatric emergency room doctors about the need to be very careful about issuing these tests, particularly for children. Now, let me be clear. If, if you have an unconscious child with a head injury, you need a CT scan. But CT scans are often used when they're not appropriate. And that's being recognized now by the medical profession. So the big question... The question that I got the most amazing pushback on, I mean, in this book, this book covers asbestos, vinyl chloride, DES, uh, an alphabet soup of carcinogens. But the big question that everyone wanted to know about is, why are you worried about cell phones? I mean, after all, all the studies show there's no problem. So I began to look at it, and I looked at the studies, and I'm not going to talk mostly about epidemiology now. Because I want you to understand something. I am trained as a cancer epidemiologist from Johns Hopkins. I'm also a toxicologist. And I recognize epidemiology, particularly of cancer, confirms the past. It confirms the past. It cannot and should not be used to set future policies. That's the, that's the dilemma. I believe we have to rely on experimental models on numerical modeling, something that you know quite a bit about here, and on other ways to estimate exposure, to predict impacts, and to prevent harm. And that's a different set of calculi than we use when we're debating epidemiologic data, which I'm prepared to do uh, afterwards if you'd like. So this book is about what we know experimentally and some of the epidemiology. And we start out with the basics of what is the electromagnetic spectrum. And it runs all the way from the uh, gamma waves up in the atmosphere the, and x-rays to 
the basic material that allows these lights to turn on. 60 hertz in the United States and 50 hertz uh, in Europe, 50 and 60 cycles per second. The microwave range is the range that covers ovens, cell phones, cordless phones, and Wi-Fi. Now, a microwave oven uses 1,000 watts of power to boil a cup of water. And a cell phone uses, on average, less than one watt, maybe 100 milliwatts. But it can use 1.6 watts per kilogram in a one gram volume in the United States. And two watts per kilogram averaged over a 10 gram volume in Europe. So I'm going to focus on not just microwaves, but on pulsed modulated microwave signals. Because I think that this is a big problem in understanding the impacts of microwave radiation. Continuous wave signals may be beneficial. And there's some evidence of this. Modulated signals that are episodic and erratic may be disruptive. And to give you some indication of this, I want to show you, sorry about that, what happens in the course of a four-second phone call. This is power density. All right, this is volts per meter. And when you're standing by, your phone is down very low. When it rings, and the first time you answer it, it goes to max power. So when you answer your phone, you can say, if you were using it without this, hello, and then you can bring it to yourself. Ideally, you put it on speakerphone or you use a headset. But the point this diagram makes is that within four seconds, you have a tremendous change in the amount of power density. And it is not the power alone, because volts per meter here are, is very weak. But it may be the change, the delta, over time, the persistent exposure to rapidly changing exposure that may be important. And just to give you some idea of the complexity, during one call, uh, for a GSM, which is what most of the US phones are right now, you get exposed to 124 different channel or frequencies that can be used in GSM. And they can differ by just a small amount. Uh, the frequency is supplied by the base station, and you get this constant pinging back and forth. Every 900 milliseconds, this tower sends a signal to the phone, and the phone sends a signal back. And it's that chatter. And, what, and the change in volts per meter over time that may be the biologically most important fact. Just to give you some idea of how complex a signal is, we know that radiation impacts depend on the nature of the waves. You've got frequency. As I said, the frequency of an oven and the phone are similar. You've got amplitude. You've got mod modulation. And then you have power density. And I want to show you now that these factors all affect the kind of response you get. In addition, in addition to the type of wave being important for determining what type of effect you get, you have the fact that host conditions make an enormous difference on the response. Obviously, younger stem cells may be more vulnerable than older differentiated cells. Biological impact will vary with a whole host of characteristics of cell properties, including transcription signal characteristics, I believe being the most important part of the uh, frequency exposures. And all of this plays a role in whether or not you get an impact. Now, it has been a dogma of radiation physics for a long time that unless you have heat from microwave radiation, you have no biological impact. I'm going to show you how that is wrong, and it has been wrong for some time. And I want to explain that the possible direct interactions with biomolecules can be related to the absorption, and not you don't absorb all microwave radiation. If you have a really thick skull, you're going to get a lot less exposure than if you have a thin infant's skull. And what these biomolecules may do depends on whether or not they are disrupting normal residents are producing free radicals, uh, reactive oxygen species, or possibly impeding melatonin or the formation of, of other naturally occurring antioxidants. Melatonin is what we make at night when we sleep, and it has a wonderful set 
of properties, including that it gets us to sleep, but it also repairs damage. So time period uh, required to see an effect is quite obvious. We can see direct effects, and there aren't too many of them, by the way. Intermediate effects are harder to study, and long-term effects, that's where I believe, as a policy matter, we have to rely on animal studies and cell cultures rather than waiting for the body counts. So microradiation today is being used in medicine to treat liver cancer, to stop bleeding, and to enhance the uptake of drugs to the brain, and I think can be used to detect cancer, as I've learned from Professor Meany in our conversation today. Um, microwave radiation has a lot of positive um, applications in medicine. But the negative impacts that it can have, depending on signal modulation, include damage to DNA, disrupting the blood-brain barrier, weakening and damaging sperm, and changing brain metabolism. And now I'm going to briefly cover those. Here is effects on mitochondrial DNA of sperm, shown by studies done by Sir John Aitken, a Cambridge University-trained andrologist who directs Australia's National Center on Research in this field. He took sperm from healthy men and put it into two test tubes. One test tube is the control, did not get exposed to cell phone radiation, and the other test tube was exposed. This is a count, simple count of vitality of sperm. Here is a measure of damage to the mitochondria, the engines of the cell. The engines of the cell were significantly damaged for if they were exposed to cell phone radiation compared to no exposure. And vitality was also significantly impaired, as was motility. So this study is one of several studies with similar findings. Another was done at the Cleveland Clinic. This study by Ashok Agarwal, who directs their infertility clinic and has published over 400 articles, found that those who reported little to no use of cell phones had the highest sperm count, and those who used cell phones for four hours a day had the lowest. Now, this was in 2008. So when you see that advice in your iPhone about not keeping the phone close to the body, keeping it at least 10 millimeters away, this is part of what the phone company lawyers have in mind. This is a study that was done showing that if you take a laptop and you shield it from the heat, so it's not generating heat, but you put Petri dishes underneath it and measure sperm count, so you're not getting an effect from heat, because we know that heat cooks sperm, that there's a significant increase in DNA fragmentation and a reduction uh, in, in sperm associated with Wi-Fi direct exposure from a laptop. Think of that the next time you put your laptop on your lap, which is why you're not supposed to put it on your laptop, which is why they don't call them laptops anymore. Notice? They're not called laptops anymore. You're supposed to put them on a desk. Or buy my book and put it on the book. That's all you need. <laughs> it really isn't a question of putting it far away. Distance is your friend. So just seriously, a book of this size under your laptop will, will allow you to have healthy children when and if you want to do so. Now, I want to show you some other data. These are data on prenatal exposures in mice. Similar results have been obtained in rats and in white rabbits, New Zealand white rabbits. This work has been done by Suleiman Kaplan and his team. He is the chairman of the Department of Histology and Embryology. He is the president of the Stereology Society, uh, and he's a very respected scientist who has published his work in the journal Brain Research. And in that study, they asked the question, do electromagnetic fields inhibit the formation and differentiation of neural stem cells during embryonic development in the hippocampus. Now, your hippocampus is very important, whether you know it or not. It allows you to think, it allows you to have memory, and it's one of the things we have to keep as healthy as possible. These results showed a significant <coughs> reduction in the number of neuronal cells in the dentate gyrus of newborn rats prenatally exposed. You don't need to know anything here except to see that there are a lot more cells here than there are here. 
fewer brain cells form in mice prenatally exposed to cell phone radiation. And the exposure was delivered with a horn antenna that delivered computer simulation of modulated signals like a GSM phone without wire cages, without confounding factors that can alter exposure. I think this is a very important finding, and I want to be clear with you. It's not one finding. It's, it has, in my exam, uh, judgment, it's one of the best studies to be done in this sub subject, but there are many others. And we need to be aware of this with the millions of young pregnant women working in our hospitals who keep their phones right over their abdomen. Prenatal exposures are something that we guard against for so many things. We give advice about alcohol, about caffeine. We need to start to include this as well. And in fact, in Turkey, where I was uh, just a few months ago, the government has issued this pamphlet that you all have in Turkish. And I believe they said over a million copies have been distributed because they believe that there are simple things people need to know to do to protect themselves and to use these devices in a smart way. Another study that I think closer to home you may be surprised to see comes from that other university nearby you guys know about called Yale. Yale University chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology is Hugh Taylor. He's an MD, PhD. And he has shared with me these data from his study, which was published in Nature Reports, which is a new top-tier journal produced by Nature. And what they did was they exposed 33 pregnant mice to a pulsed digital cell phone and the exposure, to be quite frank, was really not, I think, so great. They literally put a programmed cell phone at the drinking water bottle for the cage. That's, that, that was their exposure. And that's a good three to seven centimeters away from, you know, assuming that the animals are, you know, are there, they drink, but they don't drink all the time. Well, the lab techs said that the animals like to hang out around the cell phones and that they had a sham cell phone in one cage and a real one. And the techs didn't know which was which. But by the end of the study, they thought they did because the animals liked to hang out near the ones that were actually on. It turns out that, among other things, cell phones really do have an addictive property for these mice at least, and it seems that there are opioid receptors involved in response to cell phone radiation. And some further experimental evidence on that comes from studies that have used naloxone, which blocks the opioid receptor. Naloxone is a drug given if people have overdosed on heroin or, or methadone, and it blocks, it, it reverses that because it blocks the opioid receptor. Well, when you give this to animals that have been conditioned to cell phone radiation to do certain things, you block their response. And these are levels that don't produce heat. This is the results of Hugh Taylor's work. He showed a significant increase in hyperactivity, diminished memory, and interestingly, reduced anxiety. Now, there, there is something called normal anxiety. And these animals didn't have it. They were real laid back. But they were hyperactive. Think about that. And he showed reduced effect with reduced exposure, which is what you would expect if there was a, uh, if there was a relationship. The animals were exposed at uh, different times, different lengths of time per hour per day. Now, I want to turn briefly to some work by my colleague, Ronnie Seeger, who is chairman of the Department of Biological Regulation at the Weizmann Institute in Israel. He has shared with me his work on MAP-ERK activation as a readout for cellular response to non-ionizing radiation. And this is really elegant work. I think 
I'm going to show at the end why I believe that what the mechanism may be through which cell phone radiation is having an effect may involve uh, membrane effects and effects on um, calcium efflux. But I just want to show you one line of his work because it confirms what I indicated to you at the beginning. Not all cells respond to, e to electromagnetic fields. On average, the more mature differentiated cells are less responsive. And the cells uh, that are more responsive are the ones that have been uh, non-transformed. So they are, therefore, they're more, they're more vulnerable. And what Seeger co concludes here is that using these exposures, you got responsive cells that were non-transformed. And the response is dependent on the cellular excitation level. So you don't get uh, responses with the more mature cells, and you do get it with the uh, younger, less differentiated cells. Let me um, show you another biological effect that has been reported. And these slides come from Dr. Nora Volkoff, who is the chairman, no, the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse at the National Institutes of Health. And she and her team from Brookhaven have produced a study published in JAMA. And this is the study that you see here on page three of this pamphlet. And they looked at the question of cell phone radiation and its effects in the brain, in the area closest to the expected exposure. And they used a setup like this, where there were two phones you know, on both sides, so that the person didn't know whether one phone was turned on or not. All right? Spending 50 minutes only with the phone turned on produced this result uh, in the uh, PET scan, a significant uptake and produce a production of glucose in the area of the brain with the most exposure. Brain metabolism was significantly higher with cell phone exposure in regions closest to the antenna, uh, the orbital frontal cortex and temporal lobe. There were metabolic increases, significant changes in glucose metabolism, directly associated with the estimated intensity of the modulated, modulated microwave radiation. So these results show a biological impact from cell phones that do not produce heat. Now the question is, well, what's wrong with glucose in the brain? And the answer is, we don't know. Right now, you're producing glucose in your brain. That's what you do when you're thinking and reading. But what is the consequence for your brain of producing glucose when you don't know it, need it? Are you generating beta amyloid plaque? Are you encouraging the production of agents that we know to be associated with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? Some scientists think so. And I personally don't think I want any extra anything in my brain uh, that is, doesn't have a known role. Now, in addition to these effects that I've just shown you, other evidence has found salivary changes associated with cell phone radiation. One study I'll just mention briefly being done with buccal swabs. And it might be something that could be done here. And I'd be happy to share with you the protocol, because we're developing this at Environmental Health Trust, we are doing some research. And one of our projects is this one. Another is brain modeling. What Michael Kundi, who is an MD-PhD at University of Vienna, has shown is that there's a significant increase in micronuclei, uh, which is a measure of genetic damage associated with cell phone use. And it's very simple work. You have, a, again, this kind of headset. You don't know, the tech doesn't know whether which side is on or not, and you take a buccal swab and measure uh, changes there. In addition, there's growing accounts of effects on hearing, not surprisingly, including tinnitus, which is a disabling ringing noise, increased in young people, and effects on nerve conduction velocity. Um, some other work has been done with C. elegans, which is this lovely little worm that you can do a lot with. It has a symmetrical nervous system. And other studies in animals have shown effects on the blood-brain barrier, altered calcium transport, 
and I showed you briefly some of the work on prenatal effects on the hippocampus. Um, I'm going to um, now turn to probably the most worrisome and least well-developed set of information I want to share with you. And let me ask you, how many of you know young women who keep cell phones in their bras? Okay. One. Oh, two. All right. Three, four, five. Okay. The point is, it's a very widespread practice. You'd be amazed. And it's a problem because the cell phone companies tell you, keep the phone at least 10 millimeters away from the body. I'm going to briefly go through this case series report we have of six young women, all prior to menopause, who have breast cancer, and they have unusual breast cancer. Their breast cancers occurred right here, right where they kept their phones. And their breast cancers did not occur as normally does with one tumor or two, but they occurred with three or four right outlining the phone. And all of these women have no family history, they have no known risk factors for the disease. And here is the 2013 report published by some of the nation's top breast surgeons, including Lisa Bailey, who is a breast surgeon and former president of the American Cancer Society of California. And this practice of keeping phones in the bra is global. This is a picture from the Dominican Republican. And this is why we have to be concerned. Breast has a very high dielectric constant relative to the rest of the body. And it varies with age, we think. And we think that the younger breast with more fat and more fluid will certainly have a higher dielectric constant than a breast that doesn't have as much fat in it. And um, the breast is mostly fat. Um, this is a MRI uh, from a woman who is 21 years of age. And um, this is the outline of her phone, and this is a metastasis. Now, this is from Brazil. Um, th this is, uh, of course, she has a phone in a different area, but the fact is it's a common bad habit. Now, the companies have provided fine print warnings. Uh, in my book, I have a chapter called Reading the Fine Print, and you can't read the fine print. That's the whole point. This is what they used to put in the book. In the, in the phones, they used to give you this pamphlet. They've stopped doing that now. Now you have to go, as we did through the iPhone, for all phones, they have warnings. This is what the iPhone 4 used to say. It, said, it used to say iPhone SAR, which is Specific Absorption Rate Measurement, may exceed the FCC exposure guidelines, for body-worn operation, if positioned less than 15 millimeters from the body, e.g., when carrying the iPhone in your pocket. There it is. Now, because of this, Environmental Health Trust, we are a small science research and policy organization. And we are now taking the cell phone advice and going public with it. Cell phone companies say keep phones at least 10 millimeters away so we have started a Save the Girls campaign. Doctors warn that unusual breast cancers are occurring in women who stored cell phones in their bras. Those of you who are into Pinterest and social media and Instagram, please take this banner and spread it around the world. Because around the world, particularly, by the way, in Muslim countries, where women are in the chador, it's very common to keep cell phones in the bra. Especially women with little kids, it's very convenient. Then you don't have to worry about everything else that you're dealing with. And it's a bad practice. Now, this is an image that is in the pamphlet as well. It was developed uh, with support from Motorola in 1996. This is showing the differential exposure into the brain. And this is more recent analysis done by the Swiss National Institute of Technology and again, showing that there's a uh, very significant exposure into the young child. But no one, no one has ever thought to measure the exposure that comes from giving a baby a plastic iPhone rattle case so that it can play with its own iPhone. And the cell phone here is held right over the reproductive organs. Uh, and uh, the case comes with an advertisement. It says, protect 
the phone from the baby. It does, okay? So now I want to go back to the question I started with. How do we make the future better than the past? Well, for tobacco, when should we have acted? Should we have acted before World War I, when the American Red Cross gave out free cigarettes to GIs in foxholes so that it would calm their nerves? Should we have reacted when tobacco was a major source of revenue for most countries from taxes? When should we have taken steps on tobacco? For years, the industry said, where's the proof? Where's the proof of harm? And it was only when the proof became undeniable that we took action. So think about this statement from Einstein and help me figure out what is a responsible thing to do here. I'm not opposed to cell phones. I use them quite a bit. That's, that's how I got here. I do really use this. And by the way, I'm at that age where I can actually hear with this. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I can't hear with most phones. It's very difficult. But we have to make the world safer. And if we have information about risks, we need to ask, when should we act? I don't think it's a scientific question. It's a policy question, but it deserves serious, serious consideration because we have now more phones in the world than we have people. So we have social media for reaching you, and I'll, I'll leave with that in a minute, but I want to bring up the video, which, Aubrey, where did it go? Okay, thanks. Yep, I'll try it. There we go. Thanks. All right. So... So we want to encourage what we call <clears throat> practice safe phone. And um, with your help, uh, we look forward to your suggestions. You can re send them to us here. And we uh, welcome your questions and discussion. Thank you. Sure. Well, as you know, when you have a weak signal, your phone battery drains, which is why you should, whenever you have a really weak signal, put it on airplane mode. If it's an emergency, use the phone. But if it's not an emergency and you have a weak signal, don't use the phone because it's going, it's going to burn through exactly like that. It's searching. It's programmed to get that connection. And they work, they're, they're really amazingly well designed to do that. But when your signal's weak, your battery drains, and the antennas in the phone are located either around it or in the back, and they're symmetrical. So that means the radiation goes like this, and that means half of it goes into you, which is why holding it here is all you need to do, or putting it on the desk when, when you use it. But there are ways for you to boost the signal inside your home. You can get yourself a booster little mini cell tower antenna and put it in your home. And, believe, and that's not necessarily a bad idea, it depends on where you put it, right? You never want to have your router, your cordless phone base station next to the head of your bed or in where you're sleeping. And in, in, in our home, we have devices. They're in a closet, which is in a room where almost no one ever goes. We, have the, we are fortunate to have such a place. Not everybody does, right? Yes? A lot of the things you talked about were behavioral aspects. If you could recommend one or two policy changes, what would those be? Well, I'd start with software. 
Um, there's no reason why these phones have to look for a signal every 900 milliseconds. And I, my colleagues in, in Finland actually have, have figured out how to, how to make that work. That's like a piece of cake. You could change the operating system. There is also uh, software that has already been developed and it, it, uh, called TawkOn, T-A-W-K-O-N, and it gives you an indication from a proximity sensor with an algorithm that is in the phone for distance from tower and distance from body of when the phone is going to be giving you more exposure than you should have. So the software is pretty simple. There also, you can reconfigure your antenna so that it should be, um, it could be symmetrical. I'm sorry, directional, not symmetrical. Um, now, case design makes a huge difference. And um, this is a Pong case which does diffuse the signal. It has a copper circuit board inside it in, embedded in this high-tech plastic. But that, there, there are different ways to configure cases that can also uh, reduce it. And then there are a couple of real interesting design changes. You could make this phone so you didn't hear unless it was plugged into something, right? That would fix it right away. I don't know that people would stand for it, but you could do that. And, and that's just for starters. Um, I'm sure there are other things that can be done. And I happen to know some people are thinking about this now. Uh, at the same time, though, we have this real disconnect in the world of medicine where people are inventing uses of devices for um, wearing the computer and swallowing the, com you know, the wireless device. Well, no, it's not a bad idea to swallow a wireless device if you're looking for, a, for example, a stomach cancer, right? I mean, if, if I, I'd, I'd take that over gastric surgery any day, right? So some of these uses make sense when applied rationally. But some other uses, like you want to put a microchip in your kid, and people are putting microchips in their dogs, you know, I don't know. I guess that's a complicated set of, set of issues. Uh, I'm curious to know more about the sperm issues, because mm -hmm. I plan on having kids again in the next year or two. Mm -hmm. um, if I put the laptop on my lap now, are my sperm in a year from now going to be okay? Or are there any studies that, you know, how long does it, does it take? Okay. Well, uh, I mean, as you know, s new batch of sperm gets produced about every four months, okay? So if you wanted to be kind of cynical, you could say, oh, do whatever you want now and wait till four months before you're ready. But um, we don't know whether there might be some permanent damage. We don't. So therefore, my advice to everybody is to put some distance between yourself and your laptop and any of these other devices. Um, you know, we think that you need a half a billion healthy sperm to make one baby. Um, I, I don't know if you under, there's really a reason for this biologically in terms of the evolution of the species. Um, the reason you need a half a billion uh, sperm to make one healthy baby is because sperm don't know how to ask for directions. <laughs> Actually, uh, they, you want the fittest sperm to survive, of course. And um, the, the, the job of a healthy sperm is it's, um, it's amazing. It's as though a human would have to swim 10 miles, really. That, I mean, it's really a heroic effort to, to fertilize an egg for a sperm. They have to swim the equivalent of 10 miles. And so you, you really want the very healthiest one you know, uh, to survive. And I believe it's really important for men who want to have healthy children to be aware that what they drink and eat is important. And I think just as much as women have, are avoiding alcohol and other uh, drugs that they want to avoid uh, during pregnancy just before, men have to do that also. And it's not, it's just somehow culturally, we've never really focused on what it takes to make a healthy father as well as a healthy mother. But it, you know, it's obviously half of the equation. Yeah. Well, now we're going to go far afield from science uh, to the old work that I did on policy when I worked you know, in, in the government. And I was a, 
um, and I'm going to talk to you about something that is an idealistic concept but might just work. Uh, as some of you know, the truth and reconciliation process is what saved South Africa and also Argentina uh, when they went through horrific conflicts and uh, the society was really torn apart by what went on. And the truth and reconciliation process had at its core amnesty for all parties, forgiveness, right? And people had murdered one another, right? And they came forward, told the truth, and were forgiven. And I've uh, actually written in this book somewhere that we need a truth and reconciliation commission on toxic hazards, all of them. Because industry has the data. The only way we get it is through lawsuits now, few of which are successful, and it's not a very uh, effective or efficient process. It makes some lawyers rich, but it doesn't necessarily help all of us. So I think that we need a truth and reconciliation process. We need to say to the companies, and I'm talking to some of them now, because they are moving in the direction of making safer phones because they know they have to. You come forward now with what you know, and let's agree on building these safer devices, and you will not have to pay uh, liability for negligence, but you will have to pay for the brain cancers that are coming. Because I have written about this elsewhere, and those of you who want can ask Professor Hartoff for my publications on this. I do believe that the epidemiology now is strong enough to say that cell phones cause brain cancer. Um, but that's my belief, and it's shared by a growing number of experts in the field, including uh, several people who are senior advisors currently to the International Agency for Research on Cancer of the World Health Organization. And by the way, that's a position that I held in the past as well. So I do think it's a question of time, but I think the solution is a reconciliation process where we say to the companies, look, we understand there's a problem. Let's try to work together, and you will have amnesty from uh, liability penalties. You're right. That radio You're correct. I didn't present any of it. And in fact, that's my next, no, no, that's my next talk, <laughs> which I did not present because I, I figured I wanted to make it clear to all of you, because you've heard about the epidemiology in the public, and the reason you hear about it is because it's largely negative. Most epidemiologic studies find nothing. And I'll just briefly show you. Um, these are studies in Israel that did find something. Let me, let me do it this way. Uh, hold on. Um, most studies that study brain cancer in populations find no increased risk at all. Okay? Um, and I'll just uh, bring it up this way. And there's no increase in brain cancer. For example, when the bomb dropped at the end, what's it doing? <laughs> I haven't. When the bombs dropped at the end of World War II, um, there was no increase in brain cancer at all in the survivors until 40 years later, right? So if we go to most epidemiologic studies on cell phones and brain cancer, the average exposure has been less than 10 years. And most studies find nothing until at least 10 years of use. So I think that tumor for formation is delayed and that we should not wait for epidemiology here because of all the experimental evidence that I've just shown you. And there's much more um, that suggests that there's a problem. And then we have the fact that the cell phone standards are 17 years old or more, and they were based on a very strange thing. 
they weren't even based on human data. They were based on rectal probes in starved rats, and I'm not making this up, that had been trained to get a food reward. And they wanted to see how hot the rats had to become to stop trying to get food. And that is the basis for the standard for every one of the world's six and a half billion cell phones today. So the technologies are different, and I think our approach needs to be different as well. Uh, I'd like to make a comment in that uh, in medical physics, we usually differentiate very clearly between uh, ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. And from everything you present, it seems that you almost deliberately try to confuse the two. Well, I'm, I know I'm talking about non-ionizing radiation. I'm not sure how I would be confusing it. Just a few seconds ago, a nuclear explosion when we're talking about But that's only in the context of talking about the latency for brain cancer. I didn't present any radiation data except to show how long it took for society to act on the known hazards of ionizing radiation. The spectrum that I showed at the beginning is very clear. We are talking about the microwave spectrum, and it's quite different from ionizing radiation. It does not break DNA bonds in the same way. It does not uh, cause the separation that it does. But I think you're right about one thing. The public is very confused about whatever radiation means, and that's true. And I'm not sure how we address that issue, but I, I don't. I, I certainly understand there's a big difference between the two, and we have. You know, it took us a long time to take the action we needed to take, even now on medical radiation. Yes. So um, one difference is that we understand well the mechanism for ionizing radiation. Do you have a sense for what mechanisms might be involved? Yes, I do, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's complicated, um, and I think I have a slide I can share with you on that. Um, let me just look. Hold on. I believe it in, we are dealing with an issue of calcium um, channel effects, and I believe I can find it in this. We'll see. Just a moment. Yeah. Okay. This is from a work of the Cleveland Clinic um, where um, it, it's focused on what it could be the mechanism of the sperm damage. So it's looking at uh, what we know about reactive oxygen species and how they may be affecting um, this, the membrane and calcium efflux, and you can get effects on stress proteins um, and the kinases, heat shock proteins forming here, that can in turn have an effect on the barriers. This again focusing on the testis, leading in this case to infertility, or through here leading to calf space and effects on uh, DNA. So I think this is a very uh, beautiful drawing. It's from a study by Hamada et al. 2011. You can find it. And I think we might see effects at the cellular and subcellular level where electromagnetic fields can exert effects on the cell membranes, the cytoplasm, and the nucleus. And obviously, this is speculation. Um, this is another pretty illustration of what could be going on if a cross-sectional view of effects on plasma membrane becomes leaky and porous. And we know elect electroporation, literally electricity, opens a pore. So it, it does, we know that that happens. So you might be getting breaks in DNA through this mechanism. So you're not getting it by the ionizing mechanism that just breaks the DNA bonds. We know that breaks the chemical bonds. It's ionizing by definition. But you might be compromising uh, the membranes uh, and affecting permeability. And the reason why I think there's growing evidence that that is happening is that the FDA has recently approved some devices to treat um, cancer uh, that have been approved because they affect post-mitotic spindle formation. Well, mitosis is, you know, that's pretty important. And these devices have been approved, they're developed in Israel, and they're currently being used um, based on that. So the short answer is, I don't know, but I've I'd love to have some of you think about that and figure out what might be going on. Um, one example, uh, right now there's a, something called electrochemotherapy, 
It's mostly being developed in Europe, but they're using electrical pulses to weaken membranes to enhance you know, chemotherapy. So again, it suggests to me that there's something involving disruption of you know, gap junctions, disruption of the way that cells normally function. Um, and I think it's a very important question. It's a very important question. Now, there's a good news part I didn't get to, actually. The good news part is this. There have been a number of studies that have done um, in vitro studies where you pre-expose uh, the cells to melatonin or uh, polyphenols, um, or um, I think they also used uh, one with vitamin C, and then you expose them to uh, cell phone-like radiation, a modulated signal, and you get uh, very little damage if the cells have first been exposed to these antioxidant materials. And melatonin, which is what you make at night, is a very, very important uh, part of the, of the body. It affects almost every cell. It's why you should always sleep in the dark. An interesting little story. Women in Sweden have been studied who are blind. And the blind woman in Sweden has half the risk of breast cancer of the sighted woman. And the theory is it is because of melatonin. And other recent work from the International Agency for Research on Cancer has, just, has declared that light at night is a human carcinogen. Because the studies of workers exposed to light at night who don't sleep at night and don't make melatonin consistently find that they have a significantly elevated risk of cancer. So it's, it's a really important question you've asked, and I would welcome your ideas about what could be going on.